Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is R.W.W. Green, author of the new novel, Mercury Rising. Publishers Weekly wrote about Mercury Rising. Green remixes sci-fi conventions into a wild, satisfying adventure in a nearly picaresque vein. Readers willing to roll with the punches will delight in following Green's winding path. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate you having me on. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, Mercury Rising, how would you describe your new novel? Uh, I describe it as uh, an alternate history uh, of the 70s, uh, and instead of uh, the Cold War, you have an alien invasion. That's great. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Mercury Rising? Uh, I do. It was actually uh, right after the Space Channel program got canceled. Um, I uh, I wrote a, a kind of an alternate history of Gus Grissom and the Apollo One guys, giving them kind of a, a maybe a more noble death than dying on, on the pad. And it kind of led to the idea of this kind of 70s um, alternate history kind of thing. So I, I owe it all to uh, Gus Grissom and the... Uh, and the end of the uh, the space shuttle program. That's great. Um, I'm curious, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing your first stories and getting your first novel published? Uh, that's an interesting question. I was, uh, you know, I've, I've been a reader my entire life. I've been a writer my entire life. Uh, I didn't get serious about fiction till probably 2010 or so. Uh, I, I was a journalist for 11 years. I was a writing teacher for, you know, about 11 years, 12 years. And, um, you know, I always intended to write and, uh, it was working with the, working with the high school kids as a teacher and teaching them creative writing. that really kind of put the bug back in my ear that I, I wanted to write. Uh, so I started, you know, playing with some short stories. I, I went to an MFA program and got an MFA uh, and, um, you know, slowly kind of, try kind of rediscover my voice. Um, it, uh, the, the first book that got published was, uh, the light years, which was, uh, published by angry robot books. The same folks who were publishing Mercury rising, uh, that came out in 2020, uh, just before the pandemic hit. And, uh, that book was, uh, was, was inspired by a short story that I wrote. A lot of things I write for some reason are inspired by short stories. I wrote a short story and then it like, I liked the world. I liked the characters and I decided I want to spend a little more time in there. Um, and the kind of the rest is history, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get out a, a book a year. Uh, that's kind of my hope and, uh, I'm enjoying the ride. That's great. Can you tell us a little bit about your MFA experience? How did that go for you? It was interesting. Uh, it's a Southern Hampshire University here in uh, Southern New Hampshire, where I live. Um, they have a, a low residency MFA uh, that uh, I got into. Uh, it's kind of a, a shortcut into the whole writing process. You know, it 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 kind of helps you build the writing habit in a very short time. It helps you, you know, get some feedback and kind of builds up your first kind of writing community. Uh, so I think it probably took, you know, three or four or five years off my, off my journey, uh, in terms of like, as a, as a kind of a, a shortcut into that, into that world. Um, it was, it's a very kind of literary kind of thing. They're not big on genre. Uh, so, uh, a lot of the work I was doing kind of, there was not writing like the analysis and this kind of stuff was literary analysis. But that's cool, too, because I read a lot of, you know, I don't read just sci-fi. I read kind of sure. everything. Um, I mean, did I need my MFA to write Mercury Rising? No. Uh, but it has given me uh, a terminal degree and allowed me to do some adjunct professing. Um, so now uh, I left high school, left teaching high school in 2018, and now I'm kind of a part-time writer, part-time adjunct professor, and that seems to work out pretty good. And I owe that part to the MFA. That's great. Well, I, I read literary fiction as well. I'm, I'm curious, you are publishing um, uh, with Angry Robot Books as a science fiction writer. What appeals to you about science fiction as both a reader and a writer? Uh, I like I like the, the aspirational nature of it. 
in uh, usually I like the hopeful nature of it. You know, you look at something like, you know, old school Star Trek and there was that aspiration of like, you know, we're going to make it through. And we're going to go into space and we're going to do these cool things. And, you know, we're going to be better people. We, we're going to be less racist and all this kind of thing. And so that was the the aspirational part of it, it was, was something I liked. Um, and that's something that I, I continue to like. Uh, just the idea that, you know, we could be, you know, we could survive. I mean, I like near future history and I, I write near, not re- near near future science fiction. I write some of that stuff. But when you look at the, the science, uh, the near future looks kind of bleak. So it's really kind of fun to kind of like look ahead and figure, all right, we figured that part out. And now we're we're somewhere else at our next level. Um, and it, you can do a lot of interesting kind of thought experiments in science fiction that you can't necessarily do in literary fiction. You can think about, there's a lot of what if, and the what ifs can be much bigger than, you know, what if, um, you know, this character met the manic pixie dream girl who pulled him out of his shell. You know, you can, you can do a lot more kind of like, you know, what if we were confronted with this and, you know, what if this happened? And, you know, I, I appreciate that about science fiction quite a bit. That's great. Well, I read on your blog that you're interested in typewriters. I'm curious, do you ever write fiction on a typewriter? I do. I, uh, I, I do a lot of my first draft work actually with a typewriter because you can't, uh, you can't hook it up to the internet and you can't get distracted. <laughs> uh, so I, I really like the fact that, you know, it, it's, it's kinesthetic. It makes noise. It's, I like, you know, keeping track of the writing by, by piling pages up beside the typewriter instead of relying on the word count. Um, so I, I, I do a fair amount of my first draft work on a typewriter and then I scan it in, uh, and use OCR to, uh, turn it into a, a text file or a Google doc. And that way I can uh, do my second draft and third draft and et cetera, uh, on a computer. And I'm curious, uh, what kind of typewriter are you using? Are you using a no, a manual I've got. I last count, I've got 36 typewriters wow. uh, that I, I, you know, I collect them. I, I, I pick them up at lawn sales and thrift stores and fix them up. And I've done a couple of uh, what they call type ins is when you bring a bunch of typewriters to a coffee shop and <laughs> advertise it and people come and use the typewriters and write letters and that kind of thing. I've done, I've organized a couple of those and I've used them with my students. Uh, the one I, I think I like writing on the best is an Olympia SM9. It's probably... 50 years old um and it's you know it's a good you know it's a good german uh mid-size you know good heavy typewriter uh it doesn't move around on the desk too much when you're punching the keys um and it makes a very satisfying bell sound when i reach the end of the line well what was the make and model again of that one it's an olympia sm9 cool um, so what was your writing process when you were working on mercury rising i'm curious are you someone who plots the novel before you sit down or did you just kind of dive into the story? I, when I, I think when I first started it, it was, it was, I was diving in, but it, it was not a, it was not a straight line to finishing this book. I think I, I think I've, I started playing with it in 2015 and I put it aside and I had to work on something else and then I picked it back up and then you know, I, I had to put it aside because I was working on the light years and then, I, you know, I picked it back up and then I got interrupted for something else. And, uh, you know, by the time I, you know, I, I by the time I, I put it aside the first time, I I kind of had the idea plotted out. I knew exactly what one of the last scenes was going to be. I knew where the main character was going to end up. Uh, and then it was just a matter of getting in there. Uh, I think for the most part, I at least have a good idea where it's going to go. And I will often, you know, I'll, I'll do a, a quick kind of outline kind of thing where I'll just like write down all the, all the ideas and the beats. Sometimes I have a, uh, I have a whiteboard on my wall where I'll like, I'll do an, a plot arc, a literal arc, you know, like, you know, I'll, I'll figure out where certain things are going to be. Um, so I have that at a glance when I can look up, you know, cause when I, when I sit down, uh, especially when I was teaching, I was teach I was writing at like four thirty in the morning to to do work before high school, and I didn't have a lot of time to kind of get in the zone. So, being able to look up at that at that chart that arc was really handy to, for me to kind of figure out what the next thing is going to be. Um, 
so I guess I, I guess I'm a I guess I'm a plotter. I guess if, if that if I was going to be uh, if I was going to be named any side of that, I would be a plotter rather than a pantser. Sure. And I'm curious about short stories. Is it the same for you when you sit down to write a short story? Do you have kind of the idea in mind, or do you have like an image or just a line? How does that work for you? Usually, the the usually most of the whole thing kind of pops in my head at once. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of shower epiphanies. You know, I think the the story that uh, the light years came from, I was literally taking a shower and the entire thing popped into my head. I had the, the character, the the problem, the world, and then it was just a matter of you know drying off and and heading to uh, the writing room to to work that out. Um, a longer story, you know, if it's like six thousand or seven thousand words or something like that, I might do. Uh, a little outline because I I know I'm not going to be able to finish it in one in one go, uh, but if it's you know if it's a shorter piece you know like a thousand words or something like that or two thousand words I'm pretty sure I can just sit and bang it out. Uh, so that case there's no outline, but if if I know it's going to take some time, then uh, I don't want to lose it. Uh, so I will I will write out some notes or an outline. Sick of being upsold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Sure. Well, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who may be working on their own novels or short stories? Ooh, uh, I would say cultivate a small, hard ego. Um, you know, you don't want a, a big overinflated ego that's easily punctured. Um, you want like a, just like a kind of a walnut size ego right in your center because, you know, you're going to get rejected and you're, and you're going to get rejections on your birthday and you're going to get rejections on Christmas and you're going to get, you know, in each rejection, um, stings, you know, I, I do, uh, I used to do a, uh, a writing workshop where I talked about becoming a centurion, which was, you know, trying to get a hundred rejections a year, uh, just to kind of show that you're out there putting the stories out there. Um, you know, so you have to, uh, you have to write a lot and you have to submit a lot. Um, you know, I think I, I don't have any short stories out uh, looking for homes right now, but most of the time I've got, you know, 20, 25 stories out there uh, trying to find a place that loves them. Uh, and, you know, as soon as they come back, you know, I'll, I'll send them back out or I'll take a look at them and, you know, tweak them and send them back out. Uh, so you kind of have to have that that nugget of like, you know, I'm OK, I'm going to do this and, you know, Maybe it's maybe it's a fool's nugget, uh, false gold, uh, but I think that's uh, that's what you need. That's that's interesting. Becoming a centurion, I haven't heard that phrase in it specifically as it relates to submission. I might so, have made it up. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds good. So yeah. I'm curious, how did you deal with that, or 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 um, I guess you know. To rephrase that, what, what kept you going? Um, because, you know, obviously, as we all know, there are some people who write a short story or two, and then when those inevitable rejections happen, they go on to something else. What kind of kept you, like, in the trenches, so to speak, and just sending out all the stories? I think it's because writing has always kind of been the thing that I'm good at. You know, writing, you know, when I was when I was a kid, I, I, you know, wrote I was the kid who, you know, looked at the report card and, you know, knew my parents were not going to like it. So he wrote a couple of bonus essays for the teachers in order to up the grade a little bit before he brought the report card home. That's always writing has always been kind of my trick. Um, so, you know, I had some confidence in my trick and I know I have some talent, but, you know, whether or not it's enough talent is always the question. You know, you, you talk to an agent and, uh, you know, I've talked to some agents and they were talking about, they're looking for like the, the writers in the 98th percentile of writing, or maybe 97th, if they think they can, they can improve it with work. Um, and you hope you're in the 97th or the 98th or whatever, but the only way to find out is to keep going, to keep trying. 
And I think that's what kept me going. Got it. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed or short story collections? That's a good question. Um, I, I, and I, I read and I reread. So I'm thinking about like stuff that I've read and reread recently. Uh, I'm a big fan of Brees DJ Pancake. Um, you know, he's, he uh, was, a, was a Southern writer and he wrote uh, narrative fiction. And it was, you know, was, he only wrote the one collection because unfortunately he took his own life at a, at a very young age. But he is very much a, a writer that I like to read and reread because I, I read his endings and I like, I have to ask myself, how did he do that? You know, how did he, how did he make this story and end it there and have it have the impact that it does? Um, so I, I, I read him, uh, you know, I read, um, I'm trying to think of like, cause I read, I probably read four books a week, three to four wow. books a week. And, uh, reading fast is my only superpower, I think. <laughs> Uh, so I just, I just read, a uh, there's a, a fellow named Nick, Nick Petrie who writes, uh, kind of thrillers in the, in the Jack Reacher Lee Childs vein. Uh, and I like him quite a bit, uh, because yeah, I interviewed him on the podcast. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> one of the things I like a lot about him is that his character, uh, Peter Ash is very human. Um, you know, while Jack Reacher is kind of a, a Terminator kind of character, right. Um, you know, uh, Peter Ash is, he's vulnerable, you know, and he's got things he cares about and he's got things to lose and he's got, you know, the PTSD and it's, it's, uh, you know, it shows a lot of respect to me for veterans, but it also shows that, you know, uh, uh, Petri's got a, uh, an awareness of what makes a hero, uh, you know, a hero with a, with a lowercase H. Um, so I enjoy his stuff quite a bit. Uh, I'm reading right now a Neil Stevenson novel, uh, the new one whose name I cannot remember, but it's kind of a, it's a cli-fi kind of thing. Uh, I like him quite a bit. Um, let's see what else have I read recently. Um, uh, Christopher Hadfield, uh, the astronaut uh, from Canada, he's written mm-hmm. a, a book called The Apollo Murders which is pretty good. And it's, uh, it's set like in the, in the, it's like a set around the time of Apollo 11. And there's like, so it's a combination of like, like, I guess you'd call it historical fiction because right. there's a, there's a, you know, a murder case in there. And I, I am, I'm enjoying that. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, so I guess that's my, that's my short answer, but I could, I could <laughs> literally talk books for days. That's great. Well, what is next for you beyond Mercury Rising? Have you started working on another novel? I have. I actually, I was, uh, I've kind of put uh, a the end uh, on the on the on the work in progress, and uh, there's a there's a sequel to Mercury Rising, and possibly a trilogy uh, that I, I want to get out. Uh, so I've contracted with Angry Robot for the sequel. And, uh, if the, if the first two sell well enough, uh, they might pick up the third book, which would close out the, uh, close out that universe as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then, you know, once I get those two books out, uh, I've got to start thinking about what the next thing is going to be. And I haven't figured that out yet. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books? Sure. I'm uh, mostly I'm on Twitter at rwwgreen g r e e n e. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and that same rwwgreen. Uh, and my website is rwwgreen.com. That's great. Well, again, we've been author of the new novel Mercury Rising. Go buy a copy of the novel today. And Rob, thanks for doing this interview. Hey, thanks so much for talking to me. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Part one. Mercury Rising, January 27th, 1961. Commander Jet Carson shrugged into his flight jacket, assuming the weight of its fireproof fabric. The coat snagged on his gun belt, and he rolled his shoulders to settle it into place. The woman in the bed across the room rose to one elbow, sleep-tousled hair falling in soft layers around her. The air got caught in Jet's chest. Twenty years married, and it happened every time he saw her. He crossed the floor in two quick steps and sat next to her. 
She fluttered her hand over a yawn and blinked up at him. Do you have to go? He smiled. You always ask that. Always will. He bent to kiss her. Betty Brown. He kissed her again. Betty Brown, you are mine, mine, mine. She cocked her head. I think you mean Betty Carson. Girlfriend, fiancé, wife. His eyes twinkled. You'll always be the girl I met at the malt shop. And you'll always be the jerk leaving me. She faked a sigh. Jet captured her chin and looked into her eyes. I always come back. You'd better. She sat up in bed, the covers falling to reveal her camisole. Level with me, Jet. Is this one dangerous? Piece of cake, darling girl. A quick ride to the top to see if anything is coming our way. He grinned. But I'll get out to Mars one of these days. It's only a day out and back with the new Oppenheimers. John's already done it twice. And everything John Dunn does, you have to do too. He laughed. Unless I do it first. Jet blew Betty a kiss and made his way into the early morning air. The Cape was twenty minutes away by car, but he could get there in half that on his motorcycle. He detoured to buy donuts for his prep crew and parked on a scenic overlook above the Cape. Looking at the rocket towers and gantries made him giddy, like when he was a kid and dreamed of being a spaceman. He winced. Low-orbit patrols and scrambles. Not exactly what you imagined when you signed up. This day's mission, something to do with an overnight meteor strike in Kansas, unexpected though it was, promised to be more of the same. Jet got back on his bike and continued to the Cape. There were two taciturn guards at the gate instead of the usual friendly-faced singleton, and it took Jet a few extra minutes to clear security. He snagged a chocolate glazed from the box and handed the rest of the pastries to a runner. Get these to Big Swede. He pointed toward the launch bay with his donut. The runner hurried away without the usual banter. Jet watched him go, his mouth full of donut, head full of questions. Pastry gone, Jet slid his hands into his pockets and strolled to the logistics office, where he stuck his head through the door without knocking. What's in the wind, Mickey? The logistics chief tilted his head to look over the top of his reading glasses and leaned back in his chair. Not a thing, Jet. They say get em ready, I get em ready. He held up his clipboard so Jet could see the cotton candy pink of an ammunition requisition. Jet whistled. How ready are we talking? Full load for everyone. A lot of firepower for a meteor. It is at that. He adjusted his glasses. You don't look too broken up about it. Any day I chase stars is a good one. Jet pushed himself upright. Everyone else in brief? Yeah. The chief stuck out his hand to shake. Good luck up there. See you on the other side. The elevator took Jet five levels down and dropped him off at the briefing room. The rest of his squad, the intrepid Eagle Seven, was already there. Carl White waved and pointed to a seat next to him. What do you hear, boss? He said. Jet dropped into the seat. Not much, but we're going up loaded for Grizzly. Interesting. Carl nodded toward the podium, where the NASA bigwigs were gathering. Maybe we're about to find something out. Pad boss Gunther Werthner kept the briefing short and unusually vague. Launch in two hours, form up in high orbit, and unseal a packet of formal orders. The thin-faced man straightened his bow tie. That's all the information I've got, boys. This little trip originated at the highest level. He switched off the podium light. We're out of time. Prepare your ships. Jet leaned over to whisper to Carl. Sounds like this might be worth getting out of bed for. Carl frowned. High orbit with all weapons loaded? I don't get it. Who are we going to shoot that far out? Guess we'll find out at 1350. Jet clapped his pal on the back. 
See you up there. Carl nodded. Good flying. Jet took the monorail to the launch pit, where the crew was already hard at work on his ship. The aging LRF-15 stood on its tails, umbilicals attached at every port. The crew chief appeared out of a bank of steam, wiping his hands on an oily rag. We're making her good for you, Jet. Sven Lindeson had a PhD in physics, but no one called him doctor. Some of the other eggheads insisted the pilots use the honorific, but Sven was always just Sven, or Big Swede, because of his height and broad shoulders. Jet stuck out his hand, and Sven engulfed it in a paw like a catcher's mitt. Don't suppose you can tell me where we're going, Jet said. Sven grinned. Straight up, no sudden stops. Jet faked a glower. Then I just take a left at the moon, thanks a heap. Sven ran a hand through his thinning blonde hair. Go see to your baby. After all this milk, she may need burping. Jed exchanged pleasantries with a few other members of the launch crew, but he only had eyes for his ship. From seven paces back, every red, white, and blue foot of her looked as smooth as a car fender. Up close, Jet could see the seams, rivets, and too frequent patches that made up her skin. Ready for another show, girl? He circled the ship looking for flaws. He wouldn't find any. Sven's crew was top-notch. But it was part of his flight check process, like kicking the tires before a road trip. Jet had dubbed her Victory after their first mission and she'd proved worthy of the name. Surviving more than 75 combat and recon flights in near space. Two years before, one of the eggheads had saved Victory and her sisters from retirement, when he pointed out how easy it would be to retrofit the aging long-range fighters with third-generation Oppenheimer atomic engines. The modification increased the fighters' straight-line range and speed, while maintaining their inherent toughness and maneuverability. There were younger, more sophisticated ships, to be sure. But Jet wouldn't trade his girl for any five. Jet climbed the metal staircase up to the hatch and ducked inside. A sliding door straight ahead led to a small bunk and refresher unit. The ladder, anchored to the inside wall, fed down to the power and life support plants and up to the cockpit. Jet headed up and sank into the cracked leather of his pilot's couch. He flipped the switch to activate the control board and continued with the flight checks. Forty-five minutes later, he closed his flight book and switched on the radio. Sven, this is Victory. We're green as grass in here. What's it like outside? The clear channel static sounded like a light rain, and Sven's voice cut it like an awning. Forty more minutes to top off the tanks and you'll be good to go. Want to come out and grab some coffee? Jet clicked his mic. Negative on the Joe, but thanks for the offer. I'll grab a quick nap on the couch. Sven chuckled. Sweet dreams. I'll wake you before launch. Jet grinned. He'd be up in plenty of time for final checks. Everyone on base knew about his habit of catching catnaps where and when he could. Jet draped a bandana over his face and stretched out in the seat. He was asleep in seconds. Twenty minutes later, he was running through another abbreviated checklist. Victory cleared her final hurdles without a hitch, and Jet pulled his acceleration straps tight while the launch clock ticked down in his earphones. He checked the seal on his helmet and watched the clock move from 40 to 30 to 20 to 12. Ten count, the flight controller announced. We're at ten. Jet flicked the safety cover off the launch controls, and at zero, stabbed the ignition button. Some of the other guys in the flight left the whole sequence up to the computer, but Jet wasn't about to let a glitch keep him out of the stratosphere. The liftoff pushed him into the seat cushions, and the engine roar nearly blotted out the mission control updates coming through the earphones. Eagle 7 is away, the flight controller said. Repeat, Eagle 7 is away. 
At the computer's signal, Jet cut the launch engines and entered microgravity. Another switch uncoupled Victory from the booster ring, and the ship slid into orbit on her own power. Jet clicked his mic. Everybody who made it up, form on me. Standard configuration. He heard a chorus of Rogers, including one from a voice he hadn't expected. I didn't think you'd make it back on time for this, Bullets, Jet said. Got tired of kissing babies, the voice said. Figured I'd come along to make sure you didn't screw up. Commander John Dunn had earned his nickname for his uncanny ability to attract enemy fire. He'd been on a meet-and-greet publicity tour when the mission alert went out, and Jet had assumed his seat would go to a backup. Thanks for pitching in, Johnny boy. Sorry to cut your vacation short. The commander snorted in reply. John Bullets Dunn would rather be making garbage runs to the moon than pressing flesh and smiling for the cameras in the heartland. Eagle Seven assumed formation and made their status reports. Looks like everybody made it to the top, boss, said Carl, Jet's wingman. Confirmed. Jet slid his hand down his right leg, feeling for the cargo pocket where he had put the sealed envelope. I'm opening our orders. Inside the envelope, Jet found a folded sheet of paper and a plastic punched card. He scanned the sheet. Says here we're to park and wait for reinforcements. The radio burped static, then cleared to reveal the voice of Lieutenant Roger Sr. Shaw, the longest-serving member of Eagle 7. This is a turd-fast jet. Some congressman has his comb up about something, and we're here as a show of force. Could be, senior, John said. But maybe we should wait and see before we talk trash over an open channel. Little pitchers have big ears. Senior grumbled something, but the static covered most of it up. He cleared his throat. Sorry, all you kids on Earth listening in with your crystal radios. Go America. Mind your mothers. Carl laughed. Senior apologizes to all the roosters in Congress, too. Jet clicked the mic. Look sharp, boys. Company's coming. He turned his attention to radar. Six bogies had entered range and were moving toward the seven. What are they, Jet? Carl said. I can't get a good read. He tapped the radar display. Can you see anything, John? Static hissed for long seconds while he waited for the hero's reply. When John spoke, his voice was crisp, his earlier tomfoolery replaced with military precision and calm. A squad of reds, boys, coming in fast. Jet flicked the switches that activated his weapon systems and barked an order to the others to do the same. Victory responded to the new defense condition by tightening Jet's restraints and pulling the control rods a few more inches out of her reactor core. Instruments and dials in front of Jet crept closer to the red zone. Jet worked his blind spots. Anyone else have a visual? Got him, Senior said. Seven o'clock high, six of them. Let's come about and get in their faces. On my mark. Jet held his control stick in one hand and put the other on the attitude control panel mounted on his armrest. Mark. The control thrusters fired on the ship's nose and tail, and Jet wheeled his ship around like a well-trained warhorse. The Russian ship swung into view outside his cockpit. Do we engage, Chief? Carl said. Negative, Jet said. We keep to the treaty. Sit on your hands until we know what they're up to. It had been two and a half years since an American had fired a shot at a Soviet, and Jet wasn't going to break the streak without a darned good reason. The Russian ships matched their orbit, flying in precise formation. The drab green of their hulls reflected little sunlight, making them look more like patches on the sky than the high-tech military spacecraft they were. MiG-220s, John said. Good-looking boats. They won't be so good-looking if they try anything, Senior said. I have the center one in my sights. The radio squelched again, and a new voice entered the conversation in heavily accented English. 
Good afternoon, Commander Carson. I am Commander Yuri Grishok of the Soviet Space Forces. He chuckled. For once, you are here ahead of me. Jet's adrenaline system went into overdrive. Yuri Grishuk was the Soviet ace, and there was no way he'd be flying unless he was expecting action. Jet took a deep breath and clicked the mic. Greetings to the Soviet commander. To what do we owe the pleasure? Grishuk's voice was nonchalant. A simple joyride, commander. We wish to see if the stars were where we left them. They seem to be all here, gentlemen. Feel free to go home and make your report. The static blended with Grishuk's chuckle. I regret that I cannot. My orders dictate I remain. A flashing light on the communications panel caught Jet's eye, and he switched his radio to the secure combat channel. John's voice was dry beneath the transmission's crackle. What are they up to, Jet? Not a clue. Jet rubbed his jaw. You get more time with the bigwigs than I do. Have you heard anything? Nothing like this. The radio fell silent for a moment. This doesn't feel like an attack, though. Jet squinted out his cockpit window, taking in the formation of the Russian ships. Roger that. They're stacked too pretty for a dogfight. Pass the word, but tell the boys to stay awake. Copy that, Jet. Jet turned his attention back to the Soviet commander. How'd you like to tell us more about those orders of yours, commander? Grishuk laughed again. They are much like yours, I suspect, comrade. Orbit and wait. Jet stayed current on briefings and hadn't heard a thing about problems with the truce. His gut said Grishuk wasn't looking for trouble. Confirmed. We'll just sit up here together and enjoy the view. It wasn't a long wait. Within ten minutes, a tone sounded, announcing an open-channel message from Earth. It was a powerful signal, a broadcast meant to be picked up nearly anywhere on the planet. It started with Douglas Edwards, anchor of the CBS News. It has been my honor to share with you many times over news of global importance, Edwards said. In the last ten years alone, we've watched together as mankind reached into space, settled the moon, and set foot on Mars. The anchor's voice was its usual practiced baritone, full of gravitas and warmth, but there was an edge to it. I come to you this evening with full cooperation from our colleagues at the National Broadcast Company and the American Broadcast Company to the nearly one billion of you with access to my voice to report we have definitive proof that we are not alone in this universe. But after today, we might well wish we were. Jet's jaw dropped. Edwards cut to a live message from President Kennedy. The president didn't mince words either. Earth was under attack. A fleet from an advanced alien civilization, likely based on the planet Mercury, was on its way. The invaders had already struck the first blow, turning Freeport, Kansas, and the Soviet city of Chekalin into glass-lined craters. Their intent is clear. The president paused, and the world held its breath. Our intent must be equally clear. This is our planet, our home, and we will fight for it with every breath, every beat of our hearts. Good luck to the pilots of the combined forces. Edwards cut in again and introduced a live address from the Russian premier. Looks like JFK won the coin toss, Senior said. Looks like. Give me a minute. Jet switched to the command channel. Carson to Cape, what can you tell me about this? The static held for a full 30 seconds. Jet was about to send the signal again when a voice cut in. Jet, this is Sven. Static hissed. This is what we know. He cleared his throat. Correction, this is what we were told in the top secret briefing we received just after your launch. Intelligence has known about these Mercurians for more than a year, 
Soviet intelligence too, probably. The CIA has been trading messages with them, trying to get them to come in on our side. Jet's fists tightened on his ship's controls. They've been talking us up, telling them how great Earth is, practically invited them here. Nine hours ago, the aliens took out two cities and demanded our surrender. And we're being sent out, blind, to take on their invasion fleet? First contact. You're buying time for us to set up a defense. Static crackled. Sorry, Jet. All part of the job. He switched back to the combat channel and filled the rest of the boys in on the conversation. The Secretary General of the United Nations was taking his turn at the global podium. Any word on fleet strength? Carl said, nothing. It's us and the Russians against who knows what. Speaking of which, Jet flipped back to the open channel. Commander Grishuk, this is Carson. Grishuk's voice was terse. We thought you had forgotten us, comrade. Not likely. You and your second, come and join us on... Jet recited the frequency of the Seven's combat channel. Once the Soviet pilots were in the loop, he briefed them on Sven's message. You know anything about this? Grishuk's curses were in Russian, but no less clear for it. Spies and politicians, they will be the death of us. That seems pretty darn likely, Senior said. Likely or not, we need to move, Jet, John said. If we can't take out the enemy fleet ourselves, we need to buy time for a second stage defense. Roger that. And that means meeting them as far away from here as we can. Jet slid the plastic punched card into Victory's navigation computer, booting it up and programming in the course. The computer calculated the trip. They're close. How close, Senior said. North of Venus, and moving fast if these intercept coordinates mean anything. The teletype machine began chattering. Jet tore off the top page and scanned it. Looks like we're cleared to go, boys. Put your cards in and strap yourself down. Time to earn our paychecks. Let's just hope we don't have to cash them posthumously, Senior said. Yuri, your boy's ready over there, Jet said. Duh, Jet. We are ready and awaiting your mark, Grishuk said. We will set a little light burning when we get there so you can find your way. All right, men. I don't need to tell you how important this is. He paused, waiting for Senior to cut in with some smart aleck remark, but the veteran pilot stayed quiet. Jet's lips felt dry. He licked them. Eat, grab a nap. We need to be on our toes when we get to the other end of this. Carson out. Jet craned his neck to see the glowing curve of Earth behind him. Ahead, the Russians were rotating their ships. Jet blew a kiss toward the planet. Love you, Betty. See you soon. He clicked the mic. This is Carson. He took a breath. Light him up, boys. Mark. The power of the atomic engine sent victory hurtling out of orbit and beyond. Jet coded an in-case-of letter to Betty and sent it to Earth, care of Sven. Then he studied the mission files, rousing himself a few hours later when the ship emerged from hyperflight. Victory came to a full stop at the rendezvous coordinates. Jet sent out a single radar pulse and counted the ship sliding out of the darkness around him. Lucky 13. Every member of the seven and all six Soviets had ended up in the right place at the right time. He opened the secure combat channel and dialed the power down to a quarter usual. Looks like we made it. Yuri, how's your party? Everyone is in attendance, comrade. Paint the Ruskies as friendlies, guys. I expect they'll do the same. He paused. No matter what's happening on Earth, we're all on the same side up here. We don't get this done, they'll be landing in Times Square in a couple of days. Red Square, too. Jet waited a full thirty seconds for questions that didn't come. 
The Joint Chiefs have put me in overall command of the mission, with Commander Grishuk as my second. Sorry, Carl. What's the plan? Carl said. We're going in hot. Four G's of forward thrust until contact. Watch your wingman. John, you're playing shortstop on this one. Hang back a ways and keep an eye on the action. Come in if you need to fill a hole. Otherwise, keep an eye on the big picture. Roger, Jet. Senior's gravelly voice was tense. What are we up against? An unknown number of enemy ships with unknown capabilities. Intelligence says they probably need to breathe, so feel free to punch some holes in their hulls. Target cockpits, engines, weapons. The usual tactics. The Soviet ships are faster over the quarter. They'll go in first to see what cards the aliens are holding. We'll watch their backs. We will leave some of them for you to shoot, Grishuk said. I heard you Reds were big on sharing, Senior said. Just like we're big on bailing people out after you get them in trouble. Keep it civil, John snapped. We're all on the same side today. Senior grumbled and moved his ship into position, covering Jets 5. The American ships were fitted with front-mounted projectile weapons, which could swing to cover a 120-degree arc ahead of the cockpit. Most pilots kept the guns locked, preferring to aim with the fighter's nose. Jet triggered the mic. Make sure your seatbelts are tight, men. Yuri's guys are going in at 10 minutes. We're following at 13. Lucky number 13 again. The clock counted the minutes toward engine firing. At five minutes, Jet double-checked that the Seven's flight clocks were still synced. At ten, the Soviets lit their engines and blasted toward the invasion fleet. The next countdown started. Jet put his thumb over the ignition button at ten seconds. The clock hit zero. Here we go, boys. Look sharp. The acceleration pressed him into the couch, the only way to get a feel for speed in deep space. The stars weren't rushing by. The wind wasn't gusting. He was traveling at speeds unimaginable a decade ago, and he might as well be sitting in the training centrifuge back at base. Jet pushed the thoughts away and focused on his instruments. If the engagement went ahead as predicted, he'd be feeling something soon enough. Light the scopes, boys. Long-range radar, half power. Let's not tip them off until we have to. Assuming they haven't seen us already, Carl cut in, his voice tight. We've no idea what kind of tech they're packing. If they were all that far ahead of us, they could have taken Earth a long time ago. I doubt they know much more about us than we do about them. What the heck does the planet Mercury want with Carl started? Static flared, and Grishuk's clipped voice cut in. Grishuk here. We have them on our scopes, a hundred kilometers ahead. We see one large ship, more than a dozen smaller vessels. Escorts, we think. We read you, Commander. One mother, lots of angry babies. What's your plan? Jet heard the smile in Grishuk's voice. I plan to knock on Mama's door and ask to borrow a cup of sugar. I will let you know their answer. I'm starting to like you, Yuri. Try not to get shot. Jet coded a message to Mission Control and advised them to stay tuned for further details. Those details came in seconds. Our visitors are indeed hostile, Grishik reported. They began firing before our weapons could reach them. Static flared and the Soviet cursed inside it. I've lost one ship already. Repeat, we're taking casualties. Received, Commander. We're on our way. Jet's jaw tightened. All right, boys, let's put the pedal down. Emergency boost to 6.75G until we're in range. Radar at full. Jet tried not to dwell on the Soviet ships and the men inside them fighting for their lives in the darkness ahead. The acceleration pushed him deeper into his seat, and there was movement on his long-range scope. This is gonna get ugly fast, Jet said. Carl, take your group and make it hot for the big one. Maybe you can draw some of those escorts away from the Soviets. One flight, we're going straight in to assist. Weapons free, everyone, but keep an eye on your ammo. Confirmed, Carl said. ETA 30 seconds. John, hold back and keep your eyes on the forest for me. 
Roger, Jet. Don't forget to duck. The big engines ate up the miles, and Jet felt the reverse thrust slow his ship to attack speed. High acceleration was for straight-line travel. Human physiology couldn't handle maneuvers at that speed, nor could their reflexes keep up. I see him, Jet, Senior reported. How big is that thing? Looks like... Carl paused. A little under 900 feet long. About the size of an Iowa-class battleship. Carl's flight group shot past to engage the mothership, even as Jet's own one flight targeted the escorts. Even though they came from a different planet, the enemy ship seemed to follow similar engineering plans. Engines at one end, what looked like cockpits halfway along the gray barrel of their bodies. Near the engines, about ten feet of the underside of the alien hulls glowed like blue fire. Yuri, what's your assessment of their capabilities? The smile was gone from the Soviet ace's voice. Less maneuverability, less speed, more powerful weapons, longer range, well-armored. We have hit them many times, but we are not hurting them. Roger that. One flight, attack plan jitterbug. Strike and move. Keep them interested until we can figure out how to take them down. Jet's smile was grim. But make them keep their big mitts off you. Our ladies only dance with nice boys. Jet sent his ship into a barrel roll that put one of the escort ships in the center of his sights. He tapped the trigger, firing a burst of steel-jacketed projectiles. Recovery from the roll carried him past the enemy ship, and he whipped Victory's nose around for a coup de grace. The enemy ship loomed in his cockpit window, firing even as Jet sideslipped to avoid whatever the aliens used as projectiles. The big gray ship zoomed by close enough to set off Victory's proximity alarm. Jet thumbed his mic. You weren't kidding about them being tough, Yuri. I just hit one in the cockpit dead center, and it turned around and tried to bite me. Duh, we've already tried all the usual targets. Many unusual ones, too. Tell your pilots to fall back to support for a while. Let's see what we can do. Agreed. Jet didn't wait to watch the Soviets pull back. He put Victory into a tight bank that took her to the edge of the dogfight and spun her around. He faced front just in time to dodge another attack by the ungainly escorts. They're persistent, Vicky girl, I'll give them that much. Jet fired his weapons again, and the projectiles bounced off his opponent's cockpit. What the hell are these things made of? John's voice barked into Jet's earphones. Jet, we just lost Carl. Jet's chest cramped. Any chance he ejected? Negative, John said. It happened too fast. Jet put his ship into a climbing corkscrew to create distance between himself and his dogged attacker. Give me something, John. What do you see? I see them taking us out any time they tag us good, John said and us tagging them plenty, but not doing any damage. Roger that. Jed opened a private channel to Grishuk. Yuri, we're shooting blanks here. Got any ideas? The beginning of Yuri's response was lost to Static. Lost two more ships, running low on ammo. Static flared again. Suggest withdraw and regroup. Jet whipped his ship around as he considered the possibility. A strategic retreat would make sense on the ground, but in space, there were few places to withdraw to. They couldn't even get more ammo without going back to Earth at the moon. Jet put Victory into another dodging roll. Withdrawing is not an option. We take them now, or they hit Earth right in the middle of gun smoke. There wasn't a mark on his alien antagonist, but he'd hit the thing at least three times. What's that blue glow? Readings say it's some kind of magnetic containment system, John said. Maybe fuel, maybe ammo. Magnetic. Jet summoned up old memories of college physics lectures about the natural forces. Think we could weaken it if we heat it up? You gonna try to spacewalk with a pack of matches? Tech is working on plasma weapons, but they're barely off the drawing board. Comrades, Yuri broke in. Not only are our plasma weapons off the drawing board, they are on our ships. 
new and very secret. What's the range? Extremely short, which is why we have not tried them against the invaders. Jet rolled his ship again. We can't do this all day. We'll triple-team him. I'll keep this one busy while Yuri makes a run on him with plasma. John, you come in here and throw some lead once things heat up a little. Roger that, Jet. I'll be in range in about 40 seconds. The invaders' ships weren't nearly as maneuverable, and the pilot Jet had been playing tag with wasn't any great shakes at the stick. Yuri came up under the alien fighter and unleashed a fiery plasma attack. The blue glow faded. Jet grinned. Hit that son of a gun, John! The invader's ship went off like a firecracker, sending shrapnel and, Jet hoped, a surprised pilot into space. Jet howled in triumph. He thumbed his comm back to the combat channel. Boys, we got one of them. The Russians have plasma weapons. Use them on that blue glow on the underside of their ships. When the glow fades, shoot the hell out of it. Attack in teams of three. One to distract, one with plasma, the other with projectiles. He let his speakers fill with battle howls and declarations of victory, then clicked his comm again. Light them up, boys, and let them drift. If it doesn't kill them outright, maybe they'll run out of whatever they need to breathe. Jet watched his scopes and listened to the chatter as the Soviets and Americans formed teams. He took a deep breath and let it out slow. He patted the arm of his flight seat. We might make it home after all, girl. In minutes, one of the red dots on his scope, marking unfriendly targets, disappeared. Then, a few more vanished. It's working, Jet, John announced. We're whittling them down. Jet and Senior paired off with Vladimir Krasnov, another Russian ace. The Soviet flew in near silence, exhibiting an unearthly control and accuracy in his piloting. Working in tandem, they took out four of the enemy ships in quick succession. When we get back to Earth, I'm buying the vodka, Vlad. Jet heard a tight smile in the Russian's voice. If you think you can afford my brand, Commander. There were no immediate targets on the scope, so Jet let himself relax for a moment and tried to get a look at the big picture. With John in the fray, he no longer had eyes in the sky to give him an overview. The scope showed far fewer unfriendlies than it had minutes before. But there also were fewer green dots marking the Soviet and American forces. He sent Senior in to fill a hole in another team. We're still not winning this. He clicked his comm. Vlad, let's fly in close to that mothership, see what she's up to. Krasnov acknowledged the order with two clicks of his comm and swung his ship into position to the right of and slightly behind victory. Jet plotted a long looping course that would take them on the edge of the battle and the rear of the mothership. The alien craft was huge, far bigger than anything humanity had ever put into space. Jet's comm crackled. Most likely built in orbit, Krasnov said, speaking precisely through his heavy accent. Observe the superstructure. It would never survive a liftoff from the surface. There was a large opening in the side of the big vessel, just forward of the engines. Jet squinted at it, then clicked his comm. That looked like a hangar to you, two o'clock low. The shrug was in Krasnov's voice. Difficult to be sure from here. The opening came clearly into view and abruptly the two Earth ships were under heavy fire from guns mounted around it. Jet put his ship into a corkscrew dive toward the opening. Whatever it is, they don't want us near it, so that's where I'm going. Jet didn't wait to see if the Russian ace followed. This far away from command, it was every man for himself. He'd just have to hope the quiet Soviet was as interested in saving Earth as he was. Half the telltales on Victory's control panel went red. She was taking fire, absorbing hits along every surface. Jet gritted his teeth and gripped the control stick harder. Sorry, girl, he said. Wouldn't do it if I didn't have to. A violent push threatened to send Victory spinning into the side of the mothership. 
and the other half of the telltales went red. Jet fought for control even as he triggered the switch that freed him from his ship's failing life support system and left him reliant on whatever air and heat he could eke out of his flight suit. Working on it, Betty. Working on it. Victory entered the hangar at Nangle, scraping her portside wing on the floor as she slid out of control and throwing sparks. Jet could only hang on until she came to rest against an enemy fighter parked in the hangar. He shook his head to clear some of the fuzz and triggered his comm unit, mildly surprised that it still worked. Yuri, this is Carson. He peered out his cockpit window for some sign of what to do next. I'm inside the mothership. My boat's in rough shape. I'm going to see what kind of damage I can do from in here. He took a breath. It's your mission now. See what you can do about getting everyone home. The silence hissed, giving no indication that the signal had gotten through. Then Yuri's voice cut in. Orders received, comrade. Good luck in there. Jet twisted out of his safety harness and crawled down the tunnel to the hatch. He patted a rung of the ladder. Sorry, girl. Thanks for getting me down. The hatch opened smoothly. Jet pulled his sidearm and exited into the alien hangar. The only thing moving outside was Krasnov, who had followed him in. The Russian was older than Jet had imagined, smaller, but a pleasure to see. I expect the defenses must be automatic, Krasnov said, some kind of electric eye. Otherwise, we'd be up to our ears and aliens. He nodded toward the Russian ship. She flyable? Krasnov made a seesaw motion with his hand. How's your air? Adequate. From what I know of American technology, we will run out at approximately the same time. There's gravity here. Jet poked his thumb toward the back of the mothership. The engine room is probably that way. Let's find something that looks important and break it. The two Earthmen walked directly away from the gaping hangar doors. Neither Jet nor Krasnov had to duck to get through the far smaller egress on the other side of the room, and both stood easily in the stark corridor outside. They headed down the corridor, boot heels thudding on the dull metal floor, toward what they hoped would be the engine room. There's some kind of atmosphere in here, Jet said. Do not get comfortable and remove your helmet. Krasnov arched an eyebrow. For all we know, they breathe argon. The two men walked on, making progress without firing a shot. I don't get it, Jet said. Where is everyone? Maybe they're all in the fighters, the Russian hummed. Perhaps there is no one in the fighters either. Robots? Krasnov hummed again. Your side got them? Hmm, I have heard the Japanese do. The engine room was empty, too. At the center of the large space was a column of energy, as big around as a redwood trunk, kept in check by a glowing blue field. More magnetism. Jet drew his pistol and pointed it toward the pulsing column. What do you bet this won't put a scratch on that thing? I have a plasma weapon built into my suit. Go, I will take care of this. No, there has to be a better way. A wall panel beside the two men dissolved into gray static and cleared to show what appeared to be an egg made of gleaming metal. Jet winced as feedback squealed in his headphones. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Krasnov raise his hands to the sides of his helmet. The feedback dropped to a low hum and was replaced with a croaking metallic voice. Earthmen, you may destroy this ship, but you will not stop us. Earth will belong to the Mercurians. Jet recovered from his shock first. What are you? Your resistance is useless, the egg said. You are weak and divided. We will triumph easily. Jet craned his neck to look at Krasnov. He sounds like Ming the Merciless. What the hell is going on? You have won yourself a small amount of time today, the egg shouted. Use it to make peace with your gods. 
The voice fell silent, and the panel became inert. That tears it. I'll get word to Yuri and John. Tell them what's coming. You, Jed gestured at the pillar of energy. I'm sorry it has to go this way. This cannot end in a draw. I will give you five minutes before I fire. Jet saluted the Russian and jogged back down the corridor toward the hangar bay. Provided he didn't have to maneuver much, Victory could probably get him off the mothership and back to his men before he ran out of air. Four minutes. Three. Just another countdown. Nothing to worry about. He flipped switches to bypass damaged systems. Two. Jet skipped the safety checks. One. He got the ship off the deck and pointed toward the hangar opening. Love you, Betty. Zero. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.